All right. Week one of Advent. Yeah? Y'all feeling it? How many of y'all had Christmas in the car on the way here? Anybody? Nobody in the room. Nobody listened to Christmas music in the... Okay, okay. Micah Shadden. Okay. I'm in good company. So I, I try to hold off on Christmas music. Uh, the nature of doing Christmas music in a church setting means that you're going to be like playing Christmas music before you want to listen to Christmas music because you want other people to hear Christmas music when they want to hear Christmas music. All I'm saying is it's Christmas, y'all. I'm excited. So as God's people, we enter into a season of Advent as a way to celebrate God's promises fulfilled over hundreds and thousands of years to rejoice in the same truth that we probably rejoiced in last year, but with new, fresh joy from God. So this morning, our sermon will be the first in a series of messages that goes throughout the whole month of December that will include Christmas Eve, and it will actually include the week after Christmas, too. So we're telling kind of the whole story of Scripture in one month and showing how God brings his promises to pass. So next week, we'll talk about the birth of Christ, and we'll end up on December 29th, talking about the second coming of God. So after Christmas, showing us what Advent is leading us to, which is eventually the second coming of God and the restoration of the whole world, the wiping away of all tears and the end of suffering. So Christmas is about more than just Christmas. It's about the entire story of Scripture, and that's what we'll be looking at in the month of December. So every one of our messages uh, in the month of December is based on, inspired by, let's go with inspired by, um, a small book called The Expected One by a guy named Scott James. It's just a collection of scriptures that point to truths from Advent with discussion questions to help you as a family. So I actually have four copies of that book by Scott James. If you'd like one, um, meet me afterwards. It's very short and it just kind of helps you do like five minute 10-minute kind of things with your family every day in the month of December. So if you're looking for a quick, easy resource, especially for like kids, five to seven, this is kind of designed for you. So it's called The Expected One by Scott James. So before we really jump into our text this morning, I just want to talk about Advent, and we want to talk about what is Advent, why are we talking about Advent? You know, you got to know why you're talking about what you're talking about, or you're not going to care about what you're talking about. Amen? Y'all, y'all with me? Okay. I can see some wheels turning. And then we're going to talk about the how of Advent. So literally, what is this word that I keep saying? Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus. So says Riley McLean and his classical education. And The word Adventus literally means arrival. So we are celebrating the arrival of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And so if I could sum up Advent in a sentence, it would be this right here. The season of Advent proclaims the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. I mean, that's going to take the whole sermon right there. Like that sentence is what we're talking about today. Really, that's what we're talking about this season. Advent proclaims that Christ is enough for me in every season. No matter how successful I am and tempted to not depend on the Lord, 
No matter how much of a windfall I had at my job this year, no matter how nice of a car I have bought and how little bills I have compared to this time last year, Christ is enough. Christ is enough apart from any of that. And no matter how profound the loss you have experienced, no matter how deep or intense the pain has been, in 2019, no matter how much you may want to close the book and not even think about this year because, whoa, let's just start fresh. Even in that, Christ is enough. So in Advent, we see that he is enough through the discipline of waiting. How many of y'all ever had to wait on the Lord? How many of y'all been trusting God for something right now and you're still waiting and you want God to come through? Advent reminds us that there's a longing and a pain of the not yet. But Christ is enough right now in that moment, even though we haven't seen the promise come to pass. That's what we're talking about, the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. So that's what Advent is. Now, why are we talking about Advent, and why does it take a whole month to talk about this stuff? Simply, The story of Christmas and the story of the coming of Christ is way too big to be covered in one day. And you you can't do justice to the entirety of the Old Testament, setting a trajectory for a singular moment and then being fulfilled in an instant on one day in Christmas or during one Christmas Eve sermon. There's no way that you can actually begin to plumb the depths of what God wants us to see through the Old Testament just in one day, especially when that day is Christmas and we're just crowded out by so many different things, crowded out by good things, family gatherings, presents, itineraries, because you go to so many different places on Christmas, you know? So we take the whole month of Advent so that we can slow down and talk about the beauty of what we're looking at here. The truth is, like Brandon was talking about this morning, the story of Christmas didn't happen on Silent Night. Yes, like that's, that's like ground zero, that silent night, his birth. But thousands of years before that, there are prophecies foretelling the coming of Christ that began with what Brandon said in Genesis 3.15. Three chapters into the scriptures, we see God already promising a Messiah. And then we see generations and generations, dozens of them, waiting in faith, their whole lives, and not being able to see the promise fulfilled, but knowing that God never, ever, ever breaks his promises. So it's not just that silent night. Advent is a season of growing anticipation as we see the Savior coming, and we long for that second coming. It's a season where we surround ourselves with truths that stir up our affections again for God that we love but sometimes can grow cold to. We put things before us that remind us of the joy of Christmas. Y'all know Christmas has a smell, right? You know, you get the pot and you put the cinnamon and you put the other stuff and you put the water and then you let it simmer and it fills your house with Christmas or whatever. So I hear So Facebook tells me, like, Christmas has a smell. Or maybe you just go to the candle shop and you just buy the Christmas smell and you like Christmas and then your house is Christmas. You can decorate, but if it doesn't have the smell of Christmas, you're not really reminded 
of that same kind of stuff. Like maybe even from a kid you can remember what Christmas used to smell like to you there. Smell is the strongest sense tied to memory, and it can bring the experiences back to you. Um, Sometimes even smelling that out of context can remind you of a powerful truth, a powerful experience. I can think just a couple weeks ago, we live, Jill and I live in an old house, and we're fixing it up, along and along, like, you know, room by room, not going Chip and Joanna Gaines on it, just like, you know, in the margins of our life, when we get to fix up a little part of the house, we do. And so we're working on the attic, turning it into a finished space and everything. And so a couple weeks ago, I'm up there doing something, probably watching a YouTube video, because <laughs> I've messed it up, and I gotta do it again, whatever it is. And she's baking cookies. And so from two levels away, like the cookie smell, it's like doing this up through the house. And then all of a sudden, I don't want to do whatever it is I'm doing because like I'm drawn toward, you know, like you lift up off the ground and you like float down to the kitchen. Like I'm reminded, I'm being drawn in by this element of scent. And in the same way, we want to put things before you with the readings and with the music and with the things we'll do on social media that draw you in to the coming of Christ and why we need to remember the coming of Christ. In Advent, we celebrate the waiting. You're like, oh, cool, that rhymes. Celebrate the waiting. That's catchy. I'll remember that. But do you actually want to celebrate waiting on anything? Really? How many of y'all like waiting? Anybody? Anybody at all? Like, anyone ever go into a store and, like, want a thing and really actually kind of need the thing, but then you see the line and you're like, yeah, not today. I'm not standing in that line. No way. You know, Friday, even Friday. Um, living the bachelor life. Jill was out of town. I'm back home. I can't cook at all. And so I get on DoorDash and I'm looking through and I'm just like appalled because it's Friday night and you look over on the right side and you can see like the wait times for all the food. And I'm like, 42 minutes? Nah, I'll just skip dinner tonight. I don't want to wait. There's no way. 42 minutes for a hamburger? Like, our culture is averse to waiting. It's a microwave culture, right? You don't cook things for hours and hours and hours. You pop it in the microwave. And in the same way, it's countercultural for us to enter into a topic like Advent and say, waiting is a beautiful way to show that you trust God. Waiting for things that are essential. Waiting for things that the fact that it's not there breaks your heart. And God says, continue to wait. Be faithful in your waiting. For those that wait on the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and they won't faint. Because God is sustaining them through the waiting. And so this month, we see the beauty in the waiting. And we see that it's countercultural. If we really look at Advent and we really step into what the Lord has for us, it's going to be against the flow of the culture. Nobody thinks that, that that's even necessary. Why would God make us wait? Why would God humble himself like he does in Advent? It doesn't make any sense to people apart from the Spirit. Think about this. Any of y'all 
fancy people out there know who Versace is? Ever heard of Versace? Ever bought any Versace? Yeah, me neither. Yeah. So Gianni Versace, the designer, um, he was very opinionated about all sorts of things. And in the last interview that Versace ever gave before his death, he decided that he wanted to talk about God. And it didn't even seem to be prompted, but the interviewer just kind of like, let him go because he's talking about what he wants to talk about. So listen to this person, prominent in culture, and how they believe about God. God, He says this, Versace says, I believe in God, but I'm not the kind of religious person that goes to church, who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus born in a stable with a donkey. That's, um, well, I'm not stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power that he has, had to have himself born in a stable. It wouldn't have been comfortable. And is it? And is our waiting? And is the plan of God in his ultimate wisdom comfortable? And we all swim against the grains as we trust the Lord and we wait on Advent. Also, during this season, you know we're not even in the outline yet, right? We're still talking about Advent. We haven't even got to the sermon. Woo! So, also during the Advent, we celebrate or we observe the fact of waiting because our world is broken. How many of you guys know that we live in a fallen world? How many of you guys could probably quote a scripture that you may have learned as a kid about the fact that the world is broken? Do you feel that the world is broken, though? Have you come up against something recently that has caused heaviness in your heart because you know that it should not play out like that? And the world is systemically marred by sin. That's also wrapped up in Advent. We wait for that brokenness to be renewed. One pastor says, There is brokenness in our world that no cart full of Black Friday bargains will ever fix. There is hunger in our souls that no plate full of pumpkin pie can fill. And there is twistedness in our hearts that no mortal hand can touch. The whole creation, the Apostle Paul declared, has been groaning together for redemption, Romans 8. In Advent, Christians embrace that groaning, recognizing it not as hopeless whimpering over this present moment, but as expectant yearning for the divine banquet that Jesus is preparing for us. In Advent, the church admits, as the poet R.S. Thomas puts it, that meaning is found in waiting. And what we await is that final Advent. Just like the ancient Israelites await the coming, we await that glorious second appearing. So our main point today, as we dive into this huge body of Advent, we're going to start at the very foundation of everything, and it's that God speaks. So that's our main point. Life has purpose, and we can have hope because of two words. God speaks. He speaks to us. And it all starts at the beginning of the book, in Genesis chapter 1. But we're going to start in Hebrews 1 this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God's word says this. 
long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he has created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's word for us, and this is where we're going to camp out this morning. So we're looking at the promised coming, and we're using Hebrews chapter 1 to kind of frame our discussion this morning. So the point again, life has purpose, and we can have hope because God speaks. And in this passage, we see God speaking in a way that reminds us of John chapter 1 and a way that reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. So everything is built on the foundation of God speaking. Speaking to us, speaking into nothing, speaking through his prophets, speaking through Jesus. God talks. So that's the first point that we're going after today. The very first thing that we'll look at, if you're taking notes, is this fact right here. Our God is not silent. He chooses lovingly and graciously to connect, to reveal. He's not a silent God. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, the Bible, the Bible says that the universe was created by the word of God. And the passage that we just read, chapter 1, verse 3, says that he holds the universe together by what? The word of his power. God's words are immensely powerful, incomparably powerful. That means that everything that we see and everything that we have experienced was created by God's word. Every single thing. Everything that we don't see was created by God's word. Every angel, every demon, every soul, every connection created by God. And every physical thing, every raw material in this space, and every bit of our earth, every atom, every quark, every proton, neutron, electron, it all comes from God's word. And not only did it come from there, it's sustained eternally by the word of his power. It all comes under his authority. There's not one thing that you can imagine that God has not claimed his authority over. So let's do a little, little exercise, you know, keep you on your toes, keep you, keep you locked in, paying attention. So let's all close our eyes. Let's, I, I know, it's weird. Close your eyes and, and think about this. Think about, maybe picture what it was like before Genesis 1-1. Y'all know that verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? What's it, what's it look like before Genesis 1-1? You're probably thinking, dark, you know? There, there's, it's hard to see anything. You can open your eyes again. You can say, I mean, I couldn't see much because it was probably dark. Now think about what was the very first thing in creation to ever come onto the scene. 
after absolute nothingness, what do you have? Y'all can say it out loud, that's fine. Right, light. Light is the first thing that comes onto the scene. But, it's a trick question, sorry. Because like in the text, um, the point that I'm getting at is that his word comes into nothing. The words, let there be, out of absolutely nothing, and then light is formed. And then every other thing in the created order gets formed following the words, let there be. God's words are immensely powerful. Heaven and earth hinges on the words of God. And this makes Christianity different than a lot of other religions. We have a speaking God. We have a God that has chosen to reveal himself to us through myriad different ways. Christians don't worship just an idea. We don't worship something vague. We don't worship the golden rule and getting along with people. We don't worship the idea even of a renewed earth at the end of everything. We don't even worship the streets of gold or, or the, the tears being wiped away from our eyes. All those, those are benefits that I intensely look forward to. We worship the person of God. We worship that speaking God. And that just makes us so different than other folks. Think about 1 Kings chapter 18. That's where the prophet Elijah was at Mount Carmel. And he's facing off against the prophets of Baal. Think about the other peak over there. Think about the hundreds of people summoning Baal, dancing around and shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. They even try cutting themselves to get their idol's attention. Desperate for Baal to speak. Verse 26, but there was no voice. No one answered, and they limped around the altar that they made. Elijah even joked at their efforts. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. And honestly, think about how shocked that the prophets of Baal would have been if he did speak, because I'm sure it was just desperate attempt after desperate attempt falling on deaf ears, them hoping that maybe one day he would speak, but when has Baal spoken to them in the past? But they gave themselves so fervently to that. W.A. Criswell says this about God. God is revealing himself over the ages, over the long millennia. God is disclosing himself to men. The God of the philosopher is silent. He does not speak. But the God of the heavens speaks in his creation, in history, in conscience, and overtly so in the prophets and in his son. Praise God that he does speak to us. That he's not just sitting somewhere far off saying, I hope you can figure out a way to get to me, but I'm not going to let you know. How much more does our God do in revealing himself to us and graciously accomplishing all the work that it takes to be connected with him. How blessed are we that we're not striving to attain fellowship with some silent, aloof God, but that he draws near to us, and that he makes deep sacrifices for us. He speaks. So we see that our God is not silent here. And then we see as we progress through the text of Hebrews chapter 1, that he speaks through the prophets. So God spoke in the former days, in the first days, through the prophets. 
and the prophets, I, I'm going to take a really wide lens for, for the purpose of just talking about the Old Testament precedent. There, there are specific things that we could drill down into and, and how the Lord used various prophets to communicate specific messages to God's people. But generally speaking, God has chosen human vehicles throughout history to communicate a consistent message to his people. Brother Brandon back there, showing us the very first time that God chooses to reach out and, and share the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The Old Testament is full of that kind of thing. And you might be in here saying, I thought the God of the Old Testament just sounded really different than the God of the New Testament. Or, you know, I, I'm not really too, too well-versed in the Bible and church and all of that, but what I thought was that the Old Testament was about God and that the New Testament was about Jesus and that it was kind of like two different books that got put together, but you can't really tell why they're, why they're together. And sometimes, for me, whenever I first started reading the book, they seemed so starkly different that I had a hard time putting them together. But the more that you read and the more that you see the themes, you see that Jesus is all through the Old Testament. And you see that the message of the Old Testament is pointing us toward the coming of Jesus. All of the Old Testament is driving toward Christmas morning and ultimately toward Easter morning as we celebrate the Lord. The Old Testament is filled specifically with prophecies about his coming. Now, these numbers are everywhere. People, people study the Old Testament. They come up with all sorts of um, statistics that are kind of in the same ballpark. But one scholar says that he found some 574 verses in the Old Testament that had direct personal foretellings of the Messiah. 574. Now, the numbers are, are everywhere, but people agree that there are hundreds of references to the coming of the Messiah. Out of those 574, he found 127 that he labeled personal predictions, things about the actual person, describing the person of Jesus when he came. And 348 verses were either prophecies that talked about the first coming or the second coming, all found in the Old Testament. So it's not like Jesus just shows up and you go, oh, wow, didn't expect to see you here. The Old Testament is just full of people longing for this Messiah that's going to make all things new. And the Old Testament is brimming with the prophecies. The Old Covenant points us toward the coming of Christ. And you might think, you might struggle with, with what do I do with those first few books of the Bible? How do I interpret the law? What was the purpose of having the Old Covenant in the first place? Doesn't it seem like we could have just started with the New Covenant? What, what's up with the Old Covenant? Did God get confused? Did God try something that didn't work out? Did the New Testament, did the New Covenant have to replace the Old Covenant because he just didn't foresee some things going on? You know, like, um, uh, what's that stuff? WD-40, you know? Like, there had to be 39 other, like, WDs before you get to, like, WD-40, and that's the one that actually works. Was God just cycling through things until he got to the New Covenant? No, the Old, Test the Old Covenant is prepping us for the New Covenant. Preparing the world for Jesus' arrival. Think about the Old Testament like this. 
This is kind of aimed toward children. And, and so just, if you're a grown-up, just kind of remember what it was like to be a kid in the grocery store with your mom. Suppose you and your mom get separated in the grocery store, and you start to get scared, and you panic, and you don't know which way to go, and you run to the end of the aisle looking for her, and just before you really start to cry because you can't find her, you look down on the floor, and you can see the shadow of someone that looks just like your mom. It makes you feel really happy just seeing the shadow right there. And you start to feel hopeful because you're not going to be stuck in the store forever. Because you see someone and you see that shadow and you say, mom has to be right there. That feeling of seeing the shadow brings immense hope to that child. But which one is better? The hope of seeing the shadow or going around the corner and actually seeing mom right there? So the old covenant has been described by some as shadows of the coming of Christ, resemblances, things that are leading us toward the actual person of Christ. And so that brings us to the next point, God speaking through the prophets, showing us shadows of what is to come, but ultimately pointing to God speaking today through Jesus, choosing to speak through his son. A pastor says it like this, because you would say, so he spoke through prophets then, and now he speaks through Jesus. What, what do you actually mean by that? Th this is what I mean by that. Were a friend to tell you that he had visited a certain church and that the preacher spoke in Latin, you would understand what he meant. Spoke in Latin means that that particular language marked his utterance. Like, I, I went to that church, the guy spoke in Latin. Such is the thought here. Speaking in the Son has a reference to that which characterized God's revelation. The thought of the contrast is that God, who in the Old Testament spoke prophet-wise, speaks in the New Covenant in the New Testament son-wise. And so we're seeing the Son as, as a full expression of God communicating to us here through Jesus. So go back to that thought of the grocery store there again. And so as we think of shadows in the Old Covenant pointing to something better, let, let me give you a few shadows that you may have even seen in our F260 reading earlier this, this year, and what the shadows of the Old Testament are ultimately pointing us toward. So think about this one, the shadow of the Old Covenant priesthood. Hebrews 7 describes this. And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, abides forever, and he holds his priesthood permanently. So priest after priest after priest, generations, pointing toward the one priest that would rule forever. So there was a shadow that happened at Passover through the sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So you have the, the, the meal of Passover pointing you toward Jesus, the ultimate Passover. And then also you have the shadow of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. John 2, 
19 to 21. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in true, in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. And now Jesus' words. He, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So you see, even the building of the temple is a shadow of the coming of Christ, pointing us toward a greater reality. Hmm. God speaks. He chooses to reveal himself and to draw near to us. He chooses to not only speak to us, but give us a new heart that wants to listen to him. And as we think about the book, and we think about how God has chosen to reveal himself, we see words just everywhere. Words are kind of like a motif that run through this whole thing. So as we close this morning, I kind of want to just take us back through the basics here, back through Genesis 1 through 3, and I want to just think about the idea of words and how God reveals himself and how it all plays together. So think about this. The early chapters of Genesis are replete with God using words to create and order, to name and interpret, to bless and curse, to instruct and to warn. So God speaks, right? Let there be. And then reality results. And then there was fill in the blank. He names, and then things are publicly identified. Before God creates man, he first uses words to announce his intention. Remember how it says, let us make. And once Adam and Eve are created, their first experience with God involves words. As he gives them their cultural mandate, remember, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. As he explains their freedom, you may eat of any tree in the garden, and as he warns them against disobeying, the one command, but you may not eat of this tree in the garden. Words, setting boundaries. Now when Satan slithers onto the scene in chapter 3, words are prominent there too. His first action is to speak, and his wicked words call into question the first words that we hear. His first step is what? Sowing the seeds of doubt. Did God actually say? And his second step is to explicitly accuse God and call him a liar. And then, after Satan speaks up, you see Adam and Eve rebelling against the only restriction that they were given. And then they express, for the first time, words that are very common to us today, unfortunately. They express words of fear. I was afraid. They express words of shame. I hid myself. And they, ex they express words of blame. That woman whom you gave to be with me. And then, after all of that, God interprets their new fallen world for them. He chooses to explain things to them and to give them a promise. Even after their rebellion. 
he gives us the first words of the gospel in that moment. Foretelling the time when he would send his son to save his people and crush the head of his enemy. And now that Jesus has come, we see that he is literally called the word. He is God's explanation of himself in human form. Think about that sermon that Brett preached a, a couple months ago. John chapter 1, verse 17. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Literally, Jesus explaining God the Father in human flesh. And then our text this morning, Hebrews 1, 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation. He is God speaking. So as we close this morning, there's a picture that Matt has, and it comes from an old, uh, it comes from a church from the 17th century, and it's a portrait of two women looking at one another, and it's a moment of, of comfort, actually. On the left side, you got that, Matt? On the left side there, you see Eve, and you see Eve kind of in despair, needing a little bit of comfort, her head down, full of shame. And what do you see wrapped around her leg there? You see the serpent, and you see the deception that's crawling up and, and just slowly just constricting, and her really needing someone to reach out, needing, needing comfort. And who's comforting her on the right? That's supposed to be Mary. And so Mary, right there, pregnant with the Lord, is reaching out to comfort Eve. And I think that kind of wraps up what we're going to talk about this month. We see and we feel profoundly shame and pain from sin, from our own sin, and from the sin that we all just experience in a broken world. Sinning against other people and being sinned against and experiencing broken natural effects. Feeling the serpent just tightening up sometimes. And then receiving comfort right there. And you, and you notice it's not comfort from the Lord. It's comfort from the promise of his coming. And here's Mary, pregnant with the promise, giving comfort to her. I think that's significant. She's not being comforted by Jesus right now. She's being comforted by the promise of his coming. And the fact that that will make all things new. It's not here just yet. But the promise will come to pass. God has never, ever, ever broken a promise. And that can bring her comfort. And that one day will restore her. And his promises really can be that significant to us, church. And it's for that reason that when God speaks, that we can take it to the bank. And that we really can have hope when things hit the fan. Knowing that his promises are in there and knowing that they can mean everything to us. Thank God for his word. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, we thank you that even though we don't deserve your love, that you so graciously reached out to us. We can see in so many religions around the world high standards that have to be attained in order to win God's favor. And you just turn that all on its head, Lord.
you bring us to a place where we can admit by your spirit that we'd never reach any standard that you set for us. And yet you graciously reach down and you come to us and you make us new apart from any of our own works, Lord. We thank you for that grace. We recognize that it's extremely different. And we know and rejoice that by your spirit that it's the truth. Help us to celebrate the waiting this, this December. Help us to understand the significance of those words. Help us to, to allow that truth to meet us in whatever tough situations we may be going through right now, trusting that your promises will come to pass. Be with us now as we continue to worship you and as we scatter this morning. In your name, amen.